0: A Podcast One production. Look around the world today. It doesn't really matter where you are. You could be in Australia or Canada or China and you see people everywhere doing much the same thing, staring into their smartphones. We're starting to sense that these little pocket wonders have become just a bit sticky for our own good. It's getting harder and harder to look away, even when we need to do something important for our safety like crossing a busy intersection. Now, in the latest Terminator film, Terminator Genesis, the director tossed in a shot of everyone running around, staring at their phones. Behind the scenes, Skynet is moving ever closer to being. It gives you the sense that humans are somehow distinctly unaware, distracted from the vast changes that are happening around them and beyond them. And that theme, it runs through all of the Terminator films. Machine intelligence suddenly runs so far ahead of humanity, it escapes and destroys its former masters. And that event haunts the nightmares of many folks, both in technology and in the sciences. Now, I remember a night. This was a whiskey-fueled conversation with a friend, it was a venture capitalist, in which he assured me that this day would come, that I needed to prepare for the inevitable rise of the machines. But does the rise of the machines really mean the end of man? Or have we missed something important here about us? Good I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this third series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. A future where machine intelligence plays an ever greater role. A future that will be more intelligent and possibly more human. We're exploring the boundaries between ourselves and our machines on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. There's a word we've never used on this podcast, at least I've never used it. It's one of those words that consistently generates more heat than light, and as a result, I've stayed away from it. But this word has become one of the major talking points in any discussion of the future. So it's hard on a podcast that's all about the future to ignore it completely. So far, we've danced around it. But on this first episode in Series 3, we're going to attack the word and the question it raises head on by talking to the person who coined it. Verna Vinci is one of the most awarded science fiction writers in history. A Fire Upon the Deep, A Deepness in the Sky, Rainbow's End, Fast Times at Fairmont High, and The Cookie Monster all won the Hugo. And that... In any other case, with any other person, that would be enough. (laughs) But Vinji is also a computer scientist, and over his career as a writer, he's combined what he understands about computation and its possibilities with his storytelling. Bookworm Rum is a 1966 story about intelligence amplification, which is a topic we explored when we toured the career of Douglas Engelbart in 1968 when the world began. But that was only an early foray into something that would lead in 1993 to a brief but singular paper on the singularity. The coming technological singularity, subtitled How to Survive in a Post-Human Era, launched a score of books, hundreds of TED Talks, and millions of posts. Google CTO, Ray Kurzweil, he built a second career after being a serious inventor as a documentarian of the singularity, and he's not alone. Books like Homo Deus and The Inevitable offer visions of a future where we've passed through a definitive and irreversible transition point into something else. But before we get into that very meaty topic, there's one other reason to have Werner Vinci on this show. In a diagram on the opening pages of his novel, A Deepness in the Sky, he gives a map of various units of time as counted by spacefarers who have no cycles of days or seasons or years to use as measures. Instead, they measure time in seconds. A kilosecond, that's about 15 minutes. A megasecond, that's just about a fortnight. And a gigasecond, well... That's the first time I'd encountered that unit of time. But it stuck with me, and many years later, when it came to describing a useful unit of future time, I naturally came to the next billion seconds. So it is with enormous affection and gratitude that I welcome Werner Vinci to the next billion seconds. Welcome,
1: Werner. Thank you, Mark. Okay,
0: take us through the steps that led you to writing this paper in 1993 that framed the basics of what you're calling the technological singularity?
1: Uh, Of course, all all my life I I have been, and as a child was, enamored with the notions of uh, computers and the possibility of superhuman intelligence. And most of the ideas that we're talking about now certainly were thought of by people back then in the 50s and 60s Uh, in... In the early 80s, I wrote a, a story called uh, uh, True Names, which was largely about uh, things on, on, the, on the internet. Uh, and Marvin Minsky at MIT, together with Omni Magazine, in, invited me and some other science fiction writers uh, to an artificial intelligence conference at Carnegie Mellon. And that was in, in 1982, I think. And, I, and so I, there I was on a panel with um, Marvin and Jim Hogan and Bob Sheckley, and at this Triple eighty-two, we were chatting about the future and these sorts of ideas, and it occurred to me, and I think this really occurred to me during the panel as I was, you know, just following along, that that the term singularity would apply very well to the rise of superhuman intelligence. Uh, singularity is is actually a commonplace word in mathematical modeling, uh, basically. It's a place in your mathematical model where your model breaks for some reason, and you have to have some other rules. Uh, one of the most famous, the most, fa- one of the most famous uh, examples of a singularity is just supersonic flight. Before there were aircraft that went faster than the speed of sound, we had equations that would describe um, the uh, flow of the air, and th- these were uh, called incompressible flow. Uh, modeling. Uh, and actually, there were people who wondered what would happen when a plane went faster than the speed of sound. And planes could go faster than the speed of sound, and we made up mathematics, uh, I- uh, compressible flow mathematics, that can account for that. So that's a, that's a, a, a standard example of, of singularity. The most famous example in physics of the singularity, and maybe the most famous example altogether until perhaps our near future, is the black hole. Uh, where uh, is a singularity in 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 einstein's uh, uh, model of uh, gravity. So I was sitting on this panel, and I was thinking, I want something that totally trumps no, no pun intended, that totally trumps the uh, the uh, the notions that we've been talking about 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 intelligence and superintelligence, and how that would be a very different thing, since we would no longer we humans would no longer be the c- center of the intellectual universe. And so at that point, given the fact that I had a background in mathematical, <laughs> uh, in mathematics, uh, the notion of using the term singularity was um, uh, very natural to me and I trotted it out. And after the panel, after I, uh, after I spoke about this on the panel, two people came up to me. Um, one was a fellow who's made an observation that's been made often since and which I think ha- has a lot of significance to it, and that is, he said, you know, I think what you're, happen- what you're talking about happened several thousand years ago, not with the rise of humanity, which would count, but, but with the rise of the nation state, that it w- was something that together uh, could in some sense, uh, you know.
0: Because it was a collective intelligence right. and a collective right. capacity.
1: Right. The other thing that happened r- right after the, uh, the talk was that uh, the editor of-, of Omni came up, W e i l and 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 uh, he and he asked me uh, to write up these ideas for a first word essay in Omni. Mm. So actually, my writing about the about the singularity started. Uh, explicitly talking about the term singularity in this respect started in in uh, in this first word essay in Omni in 1983.
0: Okay, and this is a very important period of time. I mean, I was one of the people reading Omni and there were a lot of people reading Omni at that period of time because it was very much cataloging the same way that Wired would do in the 1990s. Right. It was cataloging a uh, whole transition point in the culture around ideas around the future. I mean, you're yep. being published in it. William Gibson's Burning Chrome is being published published in it. There's a lot of work that's showing an emerging culture that's coming out of Omni at that
1: point. Yeah. And th- so this was a wonderful opportunity. And Omni, Omni by the way, also, I, I think, footed the bill for the for the trip to uh, AAAI 82. And they were really very nice to me and, and, and also nice with regard to this essay. This essay came out. It's one page. It was my first crack at the idea. And then from 1983 to 1993, I talked about this. I wrote about it in, as background for stories like The Peace War and uh, Marooned in Real Time. Um, and I talked to a lot of science fiction people about it. By the way, when I say talk to science fiction people, that includes a lot of hard science people mm-hmm. since many science fiction fans are also very, very good hard science people. And I'd gotten all sorts of feedback, criticism, for instance, like the fellow who came up right after the talk. But criticism, criticism, and comments, and other regards, and the, and the take that programmers have on this. And so, in 1993, uh, I was invited to give this talk at a NASA uh, uh, conference. Um, and at that point, I had had all these years to think about this, and it really came together very well because the talk that I uh, the talk that I gave at the uh, NASA conference was actually supposed to be a paper. That paper, I think, word for word is, is is the essay that you mentioned at the beginning of the, of this uh, uh, podcast. And uh, the result is that the 1993 paper, after 10 years of thinking about this, is I am very, very, very happy with it. O- oftentimes I'm asked, what would you change about that? And I think there are some... Minor things I would change, but I am, I am very proud <laughs> of, how, of how well it, it hangs together. And, I, and if somebody asks me to, to, for more, more about the idea, my first reaction is often just to point them at that 1993 paper.
0: Okay, so take us through, what are the major points that you make in the 93 paper? You've had the decade to sort of think through the idea. What are the major points you're making in that paper?
1: The basic idea that, of the singularity, the notion that I, I, I felt that it was uh, given the progress that I was seeing in technology, that it was something that uh, the, rise of super, the rise of superhuman intelligence via technology was something that was going to happen in the relatively near historical future. Beyond that, there's the notion that I saw that there were several different scenarios for getting there. Uh, there is the standalone supercomputer idea. There is the network of humans and their computers put together. That's, I put that as a separate uh, category. And then a third category was um, the notion that individual humans collaborating with isolated computers could, in, in, in fact, have a form of intelligence amplification. Intelligence augmentation, by the way, is a term for, I think, pretty much the same thing that has been used before. The term I used in the paper was intelligence amplification.
0: Yeah, and Engelbart would have used augmentation, you were using amplification, but yeah, they're really the, two sides right. of the same coin.
1: Yeah. Uh, and and the, the story that I'd written back in 65 or 66 about the chimpanzee fitted with that... Um, Uh, very well and it also was attractive to me and I think a a lot of people at the time uh, as an alternative to being taken over by the robots Mm -hmm. although as oh let me go through the rest of the the list the next one was biological enhancements of human intelligence Mm -hmm. and then one that is not on the bulleted list at the beginning of the paper but is in the paper is the notion that that uh, embedded uh, embedded computers in network systems could create something that would be very like the notion of animism, whereas the where the environment itself wakes up, and we have a word for that nowadays. It's called the Internet of Things. I gotta say, uh, so there are those five
0: Alexa, fire the missiles. Right,
1: so there are these five um, paths, and the notion of which is the safest path for us. Uh, in fact, one of the things I did in the paper is for the. The main points I went down and sort of illustrated how each of them could have terrible, terrible, for humans, for normal humans, could have terrible outcomes. Even, at, unfortunately, the intelligence amplification uh, uh, route. Mm-hmm. So those were the main issues and track plan of the paper in
0: 93. Okay, so that's now very nearly a billion seconds ago, very nearly 30 years. You know, we're talking sort of 26 years, 25, or 25 years since that, that that paper came out. What have we seen? I mean, I, I I think that you you got the basics right there. There there isn't a significant. I, I I don't think we'd point to any of those and say that there's anything wrong about any of those, but they do seem to be happening at different rates. Mm-hmm. Biological augmentation is turning out to be difficult mm-hmm. because hu- making humans smarter is <laughs> just innately making a human smarter through biological means is turning out to be. Right difficult um networks of humans and computers well you can argue that that's the modern world yes but you can also argue that we're getting better at making computers just by themselves a lot smarter so if you're going to sort of put markers on the track now saying here we are 25 years in where would you say we've seen the the best and the least performance on that
1: oh the the least is in the purely biological enhancement i believe Um, as far as the other three or four go, um, uh, one can point to they—they they, they seem to be like horses in a race. One will pull ahead for a while, and mm. and, and and then the and then another. Is this
0: guess they're informing one another? I mean, it, oh, I think
1: it, they are informing one another. There's there's another angle though, and that is, uh, I think, in a, as I say in the paper, that there's a very good chance that when it happens, it will come as a surprise. In other words, there will be some. A uh, slam dunk advance in, in a, along one of these axes mm-hmm. that will 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 push that that particular scenario o- over the edge into frankly um, superhuman ant- territory that 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 trumps that takes over from the, the level of intelligence that is normal I- intelligence. So uh, talking about who is ahead at any given time may not may not be that informative, but it's still it's still of course worthwhile. I think there's been. Um, real progress uh, in in the uh, in the pure machine uh, line. Line, and in, in fact, it's been kind of amusing because it's it's followed one of the one of the tracks that a lot of the apologists. For the pure machine line have always ha, have always had as their defense, and that is well the machines just aren't smart enough We're, we have the right methods, but the machines just aren't aren't fast enough um,
0: and they got a, an awful lot faster sort of after around 2011, 2012. We, we turned a corner into actually, real performance I,
1: I i think I think as far as the the, the uh, exponential growth uh, that is that is Talked about when people talk about Moore's law, it, it it really has been in in track with that. We got into the petaflops region, and and although that's I, I don't I don't think that's what's being used for for, for, for that height is being used for for these uh, things that we're seeing. We still have machines that are cheap and fast enough that. With with some real advances that have been made in machine learning, but ba- basically the machine learning ideas that were touted in the in the seventies and eighties, those ideas have been good enough to give us things that are really remarkable. And, and right right now, I think the most um, spectacular break with the past is the uh, Alpha Zero stuff. Um,
0: we, we've talked about that on this ah, show great. because. In the context of talking about a machine that could start from effectively zero knowledge other than the set of rules yes, of the game, yes. and then teach itself by playing itself rather than playing humans, which was how the first version of yes. AlphaGo worked, but AlphaGo Zero, that it could just train itself and train itself to three days being better than <laughs> any human, and then in forty days being better than the original version of AlphaGo, indicated that there was a capacity there in certain rules-based systems, yes, right? Yes, and this is and I, and. And part of what we want to be careful of, and what we mentioned in the show, is th- this is good, it's important, it's interesting, but it's also just a very limited set of rules. And part yes. of what we need to do is sort of say, okay, well, if that's the island with that limited set of rules, how long does it take to grow that island so that it mm-hmm. becomes more general? And, and of course, people have been talking about what they call AGAI, which is artificial general intelligence. Mm-hmm. And we, we then end up referring back to us because we think of ourselves as having a general intelligence. Mm-hmm. We're good at some things. We're not so good at other things. Right. Right. Um, Do you suspect, because we've pointed to Moore's Law, and Moore's Law is this rule where computers get cheaper and faster with every generation. Moore's Law has kind of, it's definitely slowed down. We're not really clear if we've hit a wall on it or not, but it's definitely slowed down. Is that going to start to affect the shape of things because of that?
1: Well, I consider that Moore's Law in the... Sense of Moore's paper, yeah. not in this in this sort of generalized things are getting better and better in some yeah. exponential way, but in in Moore's original uh, essay, basically the, the 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 progress was mainly because there was a, a clear uh, set of good things that happen as the feature size gets smaller uh, by the feature size of semiconductor. Right. Parts.
0: How, how big a transistor right. is,
1: right. and that that was something that I think m- maybe almost without precedent that there's been um, uh, technological growth that depended on uh, uh, an, an easy, measurable quantity that, that also had lots of, lots of uh, possibilities for, for the improvement of. And so it became just sort of a ma- almost a managed progr- progress when you look at what the semiconductor committees and stuff were planning over the years. The other type of progress is where things uh, come from surprises mm. uh, that, that just sort of hit you. And you mentioned a minute ago about things turning a corner. I, I think um, we are in a situation now where we are going to get really, really big improvements in, in hardware capabilities. But they're, they're no longer from the sort of simple... Uh, things of making two-dimensional densities greater. The, the simplest of them now is three-dimensional, but e- even that, I think, is is being um, is not as important with, with, as as the other ways we ha- other things we're doing in terms of uh, the way we are connecting the parts and the way we are planning what's going on inside the machines. Um, I, so I I think that there are plenty of very drastic hardware improvements that are on the way that uh, people will probably continue to call Moore's Law, but I I agree that as far as feature size goes, we may be, um, things may be getting harder.
0: We're talking to Werner Vinge on the next billion seconds, and we'll be right back. And we're back talking to science fiction author and singularity term coiner, Werner Vinge. Werner, you predicted about a 30-year time horizon, which would take us out from that 93 paper to around 2023. And the interesting thing is that we can point to, and we have pointed to, these global AI. So Google clearly has a global AI. Facebook clearly has a global AI. I would suggest probably the Chinese state security Mm -hmm. agency has a global AI, as does NSA, as does there are probably other organizations with these kind of global scale artificial intelligences.
1: Major federal agencies as a whole uh, might might individually have something like that in the future.
0: Yeah. So in some sense, we're at that kind of scale in the work that you predicted, right? You know, you can point to it and say, yes, that's absolutely the case. I can also say that for instance, when I landed in L.A. A few, years ago, a few days ago, I had to drive to a friend's house, and I let the computer give me directions the entire way, and the computer was a- a- aggregating data from a whole bunch of different sources and using that to give me a set of driving directions, mm-hmm. although at one point it gave me a set of driving directions that would have killed me if I tried to execute oh. them, which was also interesting. And I had this moment where, hmm, yeah, that's... You you could have different opinions, I suppose, on what that might mean. Mm-hmm. But at some level, you also have to be very careful about the kinds of agency that you're giving these systems, mm-hmm. right? How do we negotiate? And again, you know, that's the subtitle of your paper is how do, how do we be in a post-human world when we are no longer the smartest thing around? And I can point to situations such as that situation where I'm driving across L.A. where that Artificial intelligence knows what's going on in L.A. better than I do, better than I could, and so is therefore giving me the best of its advice, but the best of its advice is not perfect, Mm -hmm. and there's this expectation on my part that I'm going to be given perfect advice. It's smart smarter than me in some ways, but not smart enough to give perfect advice. How do we negotiate being human in this world where these things that are passing themselves off as smarter than us, except when they're not?
1: Ah, well, this has sort of been the problem that people have had the incomplete knowledge uh, since, since forever. Uh, you're still being optimistic, I think, in your talking, because everything you said in, 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 your, in your discussion of your unease was positing that um, the powers you're dealing with are not malignant.
0: Oh, no, no, no. It could have easily caused me to drive directly into traffic. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I, I was across that as, nice. as this was happening, I was across that mm, this could go very
1: poorly. Right. Well, th- this, this sort of concern is, is actually, I think, one of the, or the main driving thing beh- behind the uh, enthusiasm that a lot of people have for intelligence amplification. Um, a friend of mine... Uh, Hans Moravec, mm-hmm. I think, summed up the, the view of the proponents of intelligence amplification very well when he said, all this talk about the universe becoming, excuse me, the, the world becoming unknowable and this exponential change in intelligence that is leaving us humans far behind, you know, it doesn't apply so much if you are being uh, augmented or you are amplifying the intelligence, in, the, in, that, in that case, you become intelligent, intelligent along with the process and your self-awareness grows with the uh, added capability that, that you have. And so he says, um, for me, he, sa- he, he, he went on, the idea of things become um, unintelligible because of this progress is nonsense because I intend to ride the curve. And, um, so, as
0: the goalposts are moving, you're moving with the goalposts. Right.
1: And this, this um, I, I, I think, actually makes a, a, there's a, I think there's a lot of sense to this. It, 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 I think it's a it's very, very good uh, way of looking at it. At its most optimistic, it, um, it still raises a problem about the further future. In other words, if you could imagine your essence as being this shiny blue ball, you know, that glows, and that's you. Um, when you have the addition of writing, mm-hmm. that added a, a sort of a, a little greenish uh, surface to this, uh, this blue ball, and it made, made the people who know how to read and write uh, more, more intellectually powerful. Now, with uh, the beginning of the, of the computer age, we have larger and larger uh our self is a larger and larger thing um eventually years or billions of seconds from now um the you could imagine that the um green addition is millions of times greater than this little blue uh uh ball and um uh, it's the the notion of what what becomes you is now diluted in a very very large uh, volume and uh, it's 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 um Still probably fond of you, but probably the ensemble is probably fond of you in the same way that you are fond of the zygote that became you.
0: So this is the, you know, that off, off-quoted line that the AIs of the future will keep us as pets.
1: Ah, not, not, not quite. I think the, the, the metaphor with you and your zygote actually makes more sense.
0: All right, so that this is the full... So your zygote is you after you've gone to about 16 or 20 cells when you've divided up enough.
1: Yeah, uh, right. The, the initial fertilized egg and then the, the, the first part of it. You probably understand that critter as well as it understands itself. On the other hand... You, and you are everything that it was, mm. but you are so much more. And, you, and so, you don't regard it as a pet, but you regard it fondly in, in, in a way that you, it, you can only be appreciated with the, the notion of self-awareness and identity.
0: So, if we were to pop back that billion seconds, so to take us to the late 1980s, which is a world effectively without the modern internet. I mean, it, it exists, right? But there are very few people using it. I think you and I were two of those yes. people. But there are very few people using it. And Tim Berners-Lee is just doing the very first tests on the, the web and, and all of this. In fact, he's, he's writing the paper that will lead to the web right about now. If we take our minds back and the way we think back and the way we use data back Is that then bringing in this whole green sphere enormously? In other words, have we seen over this last billion seconds, this last 30 years, because of the way we've situated ourselves in networks and because of the way we're now using the smartphone as that interface that keeps us constantly connected to one another and to all the data in that network, is that already what we can see us leaning into? And is, I guess follow up, is that the reason why we don't want to let the smartphones go even when we're walking across the street in traffic.
1: <laughs> I think that's cl- clear evidence of progress in, the, in, this, in the, th- that scenario that uh, depended on people plus computers as, as an ensemble uh, uh, sort of a thing. By the way, back in that time that you were talking about in the early 80s, it was, it was very intriguing that, you know, I think a lot of people knew the sorts of things that would be coming down the pike, and they were speculating madly on exactly how, how it would come out. And uh, it, was, it was amazing to see the various chunks fall into place and, and, and the way that, that um, things turned out.
0: Uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you go back and watch the original iPhone introduction. Steve Jobs spends 90 seconds on mobile safari, right? That's it. It's just like, oh, yeah, we've got the web on here. Actually, as it turned out, that was pretty much the entire ball game, because it wasn't so much the web, but it was all the things that would start to come through. But he still thought he was giving you a phone, right Not a connection to the global corpus of knowledge and all the other people and all of this other stuff. So even the people who were creating that, as the pieces are falling into place, don't see the pieces. Falling right into place. Right. and I, this, I think this goes back to your idea of surprise. you're right. right. when we When we get to something like this, it will be surprising, not because we couldn't see it coming, but because we weren't looking.
1: right. I think, I think also that um, by the way, I don't think we are there yet. Uh, but I, I, I think that um, post-singularity ha- has has a feature that um, is at a greater level of novelty, uh, for instance, Imagine that you wanted to describe our world to a person from 1890, from, from say, a, a European or a, a, a person from J- Japan, uh, you know, s- someone who you know, ha- has, has seen a lot of what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you could explain our world to them. They might not believe everything you claimed about what we can do, but they would understand what you were saying. Um, on the other hand... If you tried to perform this exercise with a goldfish, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have any success.
0: You wouldn't have a common language, so you wouldn't, you're right.
1: You, you, wouldn't, you, know, you might have a common language, but it's the goldfish's common language, which is limited. Um, so that's the difference that I see between pre-singularity and post-singularity. Uh, so for, for that reason, I think that uh, that that's kind of a, a good metric to hold up to what you're what we talking about, is how hard it would be to explain this to a non-enhanced uh, person from 1890 or from 1940.
0: I, I guess the question there is, will we know when we have that language or will because we're always going to be thinking back to that person from eighty nine. We won't be able to conjure them up and so we'll always be thinking of them in the terms of whatever system of thought that we have. Will we always look back down and go, yeah, we can still kind of talk to that person <laughs> or will we ever have a point where we go, those people are just alien because you can go all the way back in history and I always point to Lysistrata which is one of the first major works of Greek theater and it's this play about the 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 Spartan War and the Athenian husbands are withholding sexual favors from their – well, the Athenian wives are holding sexual favors from their husbands in order to stop the war. And the play is basically one long, dirty joke. But you can look at this play in translation and go, I understand those people. I could have a conversation with those people, will we then have this point where we'll be able to take a look at someone who was in the time of Shakespeare or someone who was in the time of Oscar Wilde, eighteen nineties, and say, "I can't have a conversation with those people anymore"? Is it going to be that that amazingly sort of, I guess, severe?
1: I think uh, actually that it's it's more extreme than that. That um, post singularity, the the, the 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 people there will will be able to undertake with a conversation with you and me. Mm. Um, perfectly well from our point of view. Uh, from their point of view, it's also perfectly well, except it's the, the, you know, there's a whole lot they're not, they, they, they can't say to us. That, that's why the, the uh, equivalence with the goldfish is, I think, right. The, we understand the goldfish uh, pretty well, actually. I, I think we understand the goldfish as well as the goldfish understands itself. Uh, the other direction is not so much, and, and, we, and, and there's all sorts of things that we cannot explain to the goldfish. Uh, so that's, that's the transition that, that, that uh, I, I see. Now right now, it is, it is true that talking to somebody from uh, 1890, much less from classic Greece, th- there, are, there, is a, there are cultural chasms there. Mm. Uh, that, that we might intellectually appreciate, but that are, are still ver- very deep. Right. It seems to me the interspecies, uh, especially when you're talking about a species like goldfish or even chimpanzees, that that is a deeper gulf.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because there's a, there's a whole sort of embodiment of culture that comes from being in a different body that we don't see because we only talk to people who roughly have the same body plan as the rest of us. All humans basically have the same gene pool we're working from. And when you start to depart from that... Language becomes harder. All right. If you're going to put a marker down, you've identified these several trends in these 93 paper, do you have a particular one that you're looking at as being the most likely to produce something very unexpected?
1: To me, I take this question as not to which is the most necessarily the most likely, but which would be the most unexpected if it, if it happened.
0: All right. So what's the most unexpected of the unexpected then? Yeah. Uh,
1: IoT, I think, the world waking up would be... Um, would be would be pretty uh, 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 abrupt and unexpected
0: so so this idea of this widespread animism and agency in the world so that it is really starting to do things on its own completely independent of any human or presumably collective AI. like it's not also not alexa or google that's really running the show either it's just all of that stuff out there and so that's almost like thinking about the way the biota works. That the more we learn about the world, the more we understand that it's actually the microorganisms that are running <laughs> the planet. Right? That first ten right. feet of right. earth in the right. ground.
1: So I'm not claiming that that is the most likely thing that's going to going to push us over into the singularity. But I'm just saying that would probably be the most shocking and surprising uh, thing. The Intelligence augmentation would be, would be pretty striking if it, if it happened that way, since you'd get these individuals who would be very, very uh, able to, you know, essentially play everybody else uh, like, uh, like puppets. Um, the um, world as the Internet plus people would be something we might be able to slip into without, uh, without a, a great deal of uh, surprise or shock. But there would be, the, so in, in that case, the thing is the sort of symptoms that you would look for that would indicate that the ensemble was behaving much more strongly intelligent than even the, Even nations appear to be uh, superhumanly powerful.
0: Werner Vinci, this has been an, an amazing conversation about the future. Thank you very much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. Oh, thank you, Mark. Back in 1965, an electrical engineer named Gordon Moore wrote a short paper in which he predicted the cost of manufacturing transistors would drop on a mathematically predictable basis, 50% every 24 months. Now, by the 1970s, this had become known as Moore's Law, and a lot of semiconductor firms, including the one that Moore co-founded, a firm called Intel, Well, they built their business plans and their product strategies around the predictions of Moore's Law, and it worked for 50 years. From 1965 to 2015, Moore's Law delivered more and more for less and less until these days our smartphones often contain a trillion or more transistors. Now, a lot of people took the predictions of Moore's Law and they applied them to other areas, such as the amount of data transmitted by mobile broadband networks or the amount of data storage or the growth of human knowledge. And everywhere they looked, they saw these processes that seemed to be accelerating toward infinity, toward singularity. And a lot of people particularly a fair few of my futurist peers, they've made all sorts of assumptions predicated on that acceleration. They've written books, they've given talks, they've all pointed to these hockey stick curves as things bend toward infinity and then they shout, the singularity is near. Here's the thing. Back in 2015, after 50 years, Moore's law hit the wall. We'd gotten so good at making transistors, they were only a few atoms across. The world of individual atoms, that's a quantum world. And if you recall our series two episode on quantum computing, the quantum world is weird, unpredictable, and very difficult to manage. We made amazing advances in technology during that 50-year run, but it's over now. The acceleration upward toward infinity hit a ceiling and has leveled out because that's the world. There are no infinites. All our singularities tell us more about the incomplete nature of our own understanding than about the nature of the universe. So the next time you hear someone promise an incredible infinite future because of some sort of singularity, keep in mind that there are always limits. And that's actually a good thing. We'll be linking to Werner's 1993 paper, The Coming Technological Singularity. So look for that on our website, nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about the relationship between humans and machines? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website. Leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In our next episode, we'll premiere a brand new series all about the future of automobiles, the next billion cars. The whole transportation sector is in the middle of a transformation touching nearly every aspect of business and culture. We're going to take a cruise through that landscape looking at self-driving cars, electric vehicles, what it means to be a passenger and a driver in the middle of the 21st century. That's the next billion cars coming to you in our next episode. On the episode after that, we'll be back with The Next Billion Seconds and a unique interview in which we explore the deep future of the 22nd century. Then, on the episode after that, we'll drop another episode of The Next Billion Cars, all about autonomous vehicles. We've got great shows coming. You'll want to be here to listen. Now let me give a big shout-out to my cousin Dominic Pesci, who generously lent me his recording studio in San Diego for my interview with Werner Vingy. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.